Good evening, everyone. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you to this evening's educational activity entitled A NICU Clinician's Guide to Rapid Whole Genome Sequencing, Test Results, Communication and Clinical Decision-Making. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from GeneDx LLC. Today's activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a jointly accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. And before we get started, I'd like to remind our audience that we will be gathering questions throughout this live program. You can select the question tab below the slide viewer to ask a question at any point during the presentation. My name is Rebecca Burke. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics with the divisions of neonatology and medical genetics at Penn State Health, Milton S. Hershey School of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'll be the moderator for today's program, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by a superb panel who I'll ask to go ahead and introduce themselves next. Hi, I'm Wendy Chung. I'm the Chief of Clinical Genetics at Columbia University and the Kennedy Family Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Chung. Hello, everyone. I'm Michelle Fergus. Uh, my son, Michael, is a patient of rapid genome sequencing, um, and this saved his life. Thank you, Ms. Fergus. So let's begin by reviewing today's learning objectives, and these are centered around implementing, interpreting, and communicating the results of genetic testing, specifically whole genome sequencing in critically ill infants. To begin, our patient caregiver advocate, Ms. Fergus, is going to give us some background on her lived experience with genome sequencing for her son, Michael. Thank you, Dr. Burke. Um, so my son now is three. Uh, when he was three months old, he weighed about nine pounds and was failure to thrive. He was negative 20 percentile. Doctors were very concerned for his health. Um, after seeing a cardiologist and a nephrologist, um, we realized his blood pressure was 135 and we were sent immediately to the hospital. Um, we were there for two weeks. It took doctors many tests, um, blood tests, and uh, they were just puzzled. They could not put two and two together. Um, it wasn't a pattern that anyone recognized. We had about six to seven doctors at one point in a room kind of consulting with each other. Um, it wasn't until about day seven where one of the doctors said, hey, let's think outside the box. They uh, brought together their team, and um, if it wasn't for the about two days of the fast results, we probably would have lost Michael. Um, his glucose level was below 10. Um, doctors were completely shocked, um, and then they realized that he's missing the atylose B gene that breaks down multimolecular sugars in his body. Uh, so after uh, extensive research on myself and uh, Michael's father, my fiance, uh, we it just uh, educated ourselves in how to help Michael. Um, unfortunately, this is uh, such a rare disease that doctors aren't um, extensively uh, knowledgeable about. So uh, we had to kind of be his advocates for that. And um, right now doctors kind of ask us questions when we go for his appointments, but we make sure that we work with a, a team that is up to date on all of his blood results. Um, he gets ultrasounds regularly to make sure his kidneys are working properly. He does have horrible nephrocalcinosis due to the damages uh, to his body, but uh, we're, we're very grateful for this, and I do want this to be something for many parents and um, doctors to also realize that, hey, it's okay not to have all the answers. Sometimes that, you know, sometimes you just have to think outside the box. Um, you know, sometimes take the doctor hat off, put the parent hat on, and go, how would I think if this was my child? Um, do everything humanly possible to find a solution and an answer so that we can move on and uh, execute a plan of action. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's a very, very powerful story and demonstrates so eloquently how powerful this testing can be, particularly in the neonatal setting, and particularly when confronted with rare diseases that a clinician may have never seen um, in their entire career up until that point. Um, so I think that um, illustrates two, two really important um, concepts there. Um, the next thing we're going to take a, a moment to review is an overview of perinatal and, and infant um, genetic testing options. 
And many of these tests, I'm sure the audience is familiar with to some degree. Um, and this is a, a graphic that's demonstrating kind of the, um, the type of conditions that each testing strategy can detect. And then the benefits and the limitations of each of those types of testing strategies um, as well. So what this graphic is attempting to demonstrate is that as you look across from um, left to right, it, the type of testing requires increased clinician knowledge or skill in order to order the test, but also usually to interpret it as well. Um, fortunately, um, in the past, targeted testing was considered to be generally faster and, and less expensive. But as technology has advanced and we ha have access to new technologies now, we have significantly improved efficiency and cost with whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing. We're focusing this evening's discussion on whole genome sequencing. And I think an easy way to think about what, what all genome sequencing can detect is essentially what you can detect with microarray, so copy number variants, um, but with the, the ability of also performing a whole exome sequence all in one test. Um, so it's quite powerful and um, also very much is going to shorten the time that you would then have to order those tests in, in sequence, ordering a, a chromosome microarray followed by an exome. In this type of testing, you get both of those tests with one. Um, the additional benefit of whole genome sequencing as compared to whole exome sequencing is also um, added sensitivity for certain trinucleotide repeat disorders with, with this type of testing. I see a question that, um, that just popped in, and that is how much does whole exome sequence, whole genome sequence accuracy and sensitivity vary between labs? Um, I think that's a great question um, and one that's really important to always be thinking about. Um, it's important whenever you're choosing a, a laboratory that you read exactly what will be able to be detected with your whole exome sequence or your whole genome sequence because they can vary. Um, and so very, very important to know those things because you may end up with a result that may be non-diagnostic and you're left wondering what else do I need to look for? What else do I need to test for? Um, so important to know those things up front before we actually send the test. I think the next thing we'll do is do a quick knowledge check with our audience. And so we'd like to have the audience respond to the following question. Which of the following can improve the diagnostic yield of genomic sequencing? And we have five answer choices here. Waiting for Sanger sequencing, combining genomic sequencing with karyotyping, a proband-only analysis, which would be only sequencing the patients and not sequencing the parents, or trio analysis, which is sequencing the proband and both biological parents. And finally, I'm unsure. Okay, fantastic. Thank, thank you for the responses. So it looks as if the majority of respondents selected TRIO analysis as the type of um, strategy that can improve the diagnostic yield of gene, genome sequencing, and that is correct. So incorporating samples from both parents can significantly improve the diagnostic yield. Um, and we can take a moment to discuss the reasons behind this. Um, if you'd like to comment, Dr. Chung. Sure. So um, the TRIO analysis is important because each individual has literally hundreds of thousands of genetic variants and being able to sift through those and identify those that are uh, contributing to or causative of the disease can be quite difficult. Um, with that, by having the parents for comparison, it immediately pops out those variants that are so-called de novo or new in the uh, child. 
all of us have de novo variants, so that in and of itself is not special. Um, what is special, though, is where those variants happen to fall, what genes they fall in, and exactly what they do to potentially alter that gene. And on average, any one person only has between one and three uh, coding genetic variants. And so those become relatively easy to see and relatively quickly to be able to classify. And as we'll talk about in a second, uh, especially in infants in the newborn nursery or in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit, a disproportionate burden of the diseases that we see are due to those de novo variants. So it's uh, very, very helpful in terms of increasing that diagnostic field. And the other type of um, inheritance pattern that we can detect is if both parents were carriers for a condition, the patient is then um, affected, correct? Correct. So having the parents allows us to determine something we call phase. So if you had the infant only, you might see two variants in a gene, but you wouldn't know if those were both inherited from one parent or one from each of the two parents. And as you said, for a recessive condition, it takes two to tango. You've got to have both genes involved. And so having that, the two parents allows us to see that one comes from one and one comes from the other in those cases. And, and again, where uh, days may matter, being able to get to a diagnosis quickly. Absolutely. And, and there's certainly test modalities where you can follow up with parent testing later. Um, but I think having that trio analysis early on certainly provides a, a much more powerful result. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Um, Dr. Chung, sure. we'll ask you to go over the diagnostic field of Westminster. Yep. So uh, WES is just an abbreviation for whole exome sequencing. Um, this particular case series was done in the relatively early days. Uh, you can see the timestamp of 2016 when this was published. Uh, and this was a large case series at the time um, by one of the largest series that had been published, so over 3,000 cases. Uh, I'll say by comparison, similar case series from the same laboratory are now over 120,000 cases of exome sequencing. So you can see uh, just in a few years how much the volume has increased because, in fact, it's been so clinically useful. The point that I want to make here is that um, you can see along the x-axis rather the different indications for which testing was sent. Um, these were not only newborns, but these actually spanned individuals across the lifespan, but were largely children. And then you can see on the y-axis the diagnostic yield or the percentage of individuals who actually had diagnostic or positive results. Um, the point is, is that although there are a variety of indications, I would argue that for almost all of the indications, there was a significant yield, something that could be clinically useful, and some more so than others. The other thing in these earlier days in 2016 is that this test was oftentimes not a first-line test, but oftentimes had been a test done after something like a chromosome microarray, a targeted panel, um, individual genes. And so um, the diagnostic yield, I would say, this is a sort of lower bound, um, the diagnostic yield, given that we're going to be talking with exome sequencing as replacing many of these other tests um, could easily add another 10% to many of these indications. Um, as you look at this, um, there's something that may not be so obvious, but MCA or multiple congenital anomalies. I'm just going to highlight that as one indication where that diagnostic yield is quite high, in my opinion. Cardiovascular, oftentimes congenital heart disease, and then things like seizures or epilepsy. Again, diagnostic yields, uh, I would say at a minimum of about 25%. So I say this because these are many of the indications we'll see in the neonatal intensive care unit. Many times uh, prenatal testing, genetic testing, that is, has not been performed. And so uh, being able to, again, get to a diagnosis quickly, efficiently, cost-effectively, uh, I would argue that these genomic strategies as a first-liner can be quite helpful. Um, again, uh, we talked about trios in the last slide, and I'll show you here a comparison. Uh, ProBand is the uh, sort of genetic technical term we use for the case only for the infant uh, or the individual with the, the indication I show here. Then you can see that on average that yield was 23.6% when it was only the individual with the indication. Whereas if you add the parents, uh, that diagnostic yield goes up by about 7.5%. So adding the parents, um, the proof is in the pudding. It really does help in terms of having those parents by comparison as we talked about for recessive conditions or de novos. 
Um, I'll also point out here something that I didn't appreciate uh, nearly as much in the early days is that in some cases, when you do a comprehensive look at the genome, uh, you may be surprised, but there are some children that will have more than one diagnosis. They'll actually have a dual diagnosis. I've even had patients that have three genetic diagnoses, and my record is four different genetic diagnoses. Um, and sometimes they can have this, um, they may not be recognizable because they may sort of, when they're superimposed, they don't read the textbook for either condition. And in fact, I even had one patient where one diagnosis was microcephaly, the other diagnosis was macrocephaly. The two of them cancered out and they were normocephalic, but I wouldn't have recognized either one of them because they didn't read the textbook for either case. So within that, really being able to have this unbiased look at the entire genome can be quite helpful and really, I think, hone in on, on the information and the diagnosis. That's so, so important. One, one question I wanted to just bring up, um, Dr. Chung, is I'm glad you mentioned multiple congenital anomalies. Um, that's something that, as you know, neonatologists see so frequently in their clinical practice. And many neonatologists are comfortable sending a microarray for that indication. Um, but I think... Um, thinking about how we could then leverage whole genome sequencing because we're getting that chromosome microarray data, but then we're also getting the exome sequencing data, correct? Exactly right. So we'll get to that on the next slide, that you get a two for one uh, when you do whole genome sequencing. So you can actually replace your chromosome microarray and your exome and boil this down to one single test that will cover all of them. And so as you were showing in the compare contrast between the different tests, I think this is actually going to become the T-H-E genetic test. Um, they're really in terms of things that we can identify. I'm not saying any test is perfect. That, that would, that would right. not be correct. But it sure is a good one in terms of covering everything. One other point that I neglected, but um, I just want to say as I was talking about dual diagnoses and other sometimes what we call secondary uh, or incidental findings, mm -hmm. is that when you do look at everything, when you look at all 20,000 genes all together, you're looking primarily, the analyst is looking for the uh, conditions that explain the symptoms that you write on the requisition. I'll also emphasize for those of you who are the ordering physicians, really important to put correct, accurate, comprehensive information on the clinical summary because they're really guided in terms of interpretation of the data based on what you write. Sometimes in newborns, we don't have the whole story, and sometimes you can even give updates as the story unfolds, but it's important to, to give complete information. As we're doing that analysis, um, we have something that we call secondary findings. Secondary in the sense that it's not the initial purpose, it's not the primary purpose of doing the genetic test, but we've had a bunch of really smart people over the years think about what are genes for which if you knew that genetic diagnosis, there is something that could be life-saving either for that child or potentially for one of their parents or other members of the family, where you would really feel like you had an ethical duty to rescue. So these are things like, for instance, long QT syndrome, where someone could die of a sudden cardiac death. Inherited cancers, where again, if you knew about this, maybe you could screen for the cancer, maybe even do something in terms of risk reduction. So these are not something that are required. Uh, the way we've set this up, laboratories and, and clinicians, is that you can either say you want it or you can say you don't want it. And either way is fine. Um, and within this, I have to say, in my own experience with critically ill newborns, parents will oftentimes, you know, have enough on their plate and that's not mm -hmm. top of mind to deal with right away. So I just want to be clear, you don't have to force this down anyone's throat, but it is important as part of the consenting process to let parents know that that's something that they may want to know or they may not. We find that we see those types of secondary findings about 2% of the time on average in the aggregate across all those genes. So it doesn't happen very often. But when it does, I can say I've seen it for myself. It can be quite helpful to the family. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears just a tad um, and now talk about rapid genome, whole genome sequencing. So this is what I was referring to. So this is now the whole enchilada. Um, it is, a, I would argue, replacement technology for uh, chromosome microarray, gene panels, exome sequencing, you get all of this information together because we're sequencing the three billion base pairs for the individual. Uh, within, as we're doing this, um, like I said, no genetic test is perfect, so all of us have our blind spots. 
And in part, that's because we don't know what all the genes in our genome do. Uh, again, there are 20,000 genes. We know about 7,000-ish or so, but that's not even 50%. And we're learning every single day. So a negative test doesn't rule out a genetic diagnosis, but when you find it, of course, it sure helps. The other adjective I put in front of here is rapid. And within this, I found this to be incredibly helpful, especially, as I said, for infants and children in our intensive care units. Um, those kiddos are sick. Uh, we oftentimes, um, they're head scratchers. We haven't gotten it, got it all figured out. And we're trying to make really important decisions in terms of management and families are, you know, obviously very anxious um, and worried about their children or their child. So within this, this is a way uh, at least of being able to comprehensively look at the genetics sort of in one fell swoop. Within this, it really is for the clinician, I think the major um, sort of decision to make is yay or nay. Um, you don't have to know, you don't have to know ahead of time what the diagnosis is. You don't have to be a dysmorphologist and be able to recognize Williams syndrome. You don't even have to be able to recognize hereditary fructose intolerance. All you have to have is the clinical intuition that it might be genetic and then be able to send the test based on that. That's the magic of what the laboratory is able to do with the combination of looking at the information that you're providing on the requisition, in addition to being able to know a lot about genetic conditions and do the matching. With this, uh, again, I would argue this can now be a first-tier test and can allow you to make some important decisions along multiple dimensions. Number one, for things like hereditary fructose intolerance, it's very easy to manage, very easy to treat once you know that's the diagnosis. If you don't know the diagnosis, you can get yourself into real trouble. But once you know the diagnosis, very easy to manage. Um, with this, it becomes really important also to know what this is not. So if you come to a diagnosis, you don't have to keep doing invasive tests. You don't have to do a liver biopsy. You don't have to do MRIs. You don't have to hire five consultants to come in and give you their advice. You can really cut to the chase and be able to get to the information very quickly. And especially in newborns, what I oftentimes find is when I do come up with that diagnosis, there can be other clinical features that I haven't yet recognized. And so it guides me in terms of also looking for other associated features. And what I love to do is be able to have that clarity. And I find personally, both the, the team that's managing the baby as well as the parents, it allows for just really clear communication to be able to say, this is what it is, this is what it isn't. Um, if we don't come up with an answer, again, not as much clarity, um, but when we do come up with an answer, as I'll show you, oftentimes something like a third of the time, it really aligns people. Um, you know, it helps communication. It helps in terms of the consultants know exactly what they're looking for. It's not just a wild goose chase. Um, and with this, it oftentimes helps parents to access resource, which may even include other families who have been there and done that. Get them some real sort of concrete um parent-to-parent -parent guidance in terms of what to expect and how to plan for that. Within this, it's something that um, many, I think, both um, professional societies, the American College of Medical Genetics as an example, so, um, you know, we're represented by our professional organization, but increasingly many other specialists and even uh, children's hospitals, inpatient services, I think, are recognizing the value of this. Um, what I also like is that by the time the patient is discharged, when they're ready to go home, there really is a complete plan. Um, I feel like families, you know, have their marching orders. They know who to follow up with. They they have can have a comprehensive care plan that just feels more settling. And so for all those reasons, um, I think it can be really, really helpful. Absolutely. Um, having a having an action plan and having a surveillance plan for some conditions can be extremely helpful to the family in order to plan the number of appointments that they may need and getting to tertiary centers, et cetera. Yep. And I just want to um, say that when it comes to rapid, um, some of you might say, oh, well, you know, I've seen this on television. They do that, you know, test and it's like 30 minutes later, you get the results. So <laughs> uh, I just want to set expectations. It's not quite that fast as they make it look on TV. Um, but when I think about the early days when this used to take four months, it's incredibly much faster now. Um, many of the laboratories that offer this service will have results back, at least a, an initial call out within five to seven days. Um, they literally staff the laboratories uh, seven days a week to be able to handle these emergency cases. 
uh, and they really are pulling all out in terms of making sure that uh, they know how important it is to the clinicians and families at the bedside. So they really do um, prioritize and have stat service to be able to get this done. We have a question from the audience, Dr. Chung, that I think we can answer quickly now. And the question is, does the rapid whole genome sequence require parent blood samples too? Recognizing that can be tricky to obtain. Is it possible that we could use buccal or saliva samples in some cases for parents? Good question. Um, the answer is you need to check with your individual laboratory. Um, mm -hmm. I do appreciate, I can say I myself have felt that pain because the parents aren't patients at your hospital and so no one wants to draw their blood. Uh, it's much easier just to get a cheek swab. Um, the limitation, uh, if you haven't thought about it too much, is that there's all this bacteria that lives in your mouth. And when we do genome sequencing in particular, we actually amplify that DNA from all the bacteria, and that gets in the way and is really suboptimal. Um, in general, most laboratories don't want to do that. They really do want to get a blood sample for that reason, both from the infant and the parents. But again, check with your laboratory to see what their requirements are. Great. Let's move on to um, your next slide, Dr. Chen. Yep. So I just wanted to show you some concrete experience in terms of a series that we've done at my hospital. Um, we did this program where we had uh, a service that we supplied to our uh, neonatologists and our intensivists. Um, and we wanted to be able to help them understand for whom this would be useful. And again, this could be for us, it was not limited to neonates. Um, so when we did this, we realized that uh, guidance would help them. And the types of things, the types of children for whom a diagnostic yield is reasonable, and that goes back to what I was saying with the exome diagnostic yield, not, not unlike that, uh, is if there's a structural anomaly, intellectual disabilities, developmental delay, dysmorphic facial features, um, individuals who are small, short, microcephalic, failure to thrive, epilepsy, and any type of organ failure. And then depending on where you practice, when there's a family history of a similarly affected sibling or areas of um, where you may have consanguinity uh, or um, distant relationships between parents. All of those increase the diagnostic yields. Um, basically, if you feel strongly, any of those could be an indication. But uh, in the series that I'm talking about, we required that they had two or more of the things on that list. And so the yield that I'm going to tell you is based on that. As I said, uh, we did do this with both biological parents available with a blood sample. And in all cases, we got results within seven days of verbal call out. Um, in doing this, uh, we did also need to have people that could turn this around rapidly. So we have an inpatient genetic counselor. Um, it's not always the geneticist, I'll admit, who's getting the ball going. Uh, we started having a service where we could um, have the neonatologist sort of give a heads up that there was a baby that they were concerned about, be in direct contact with the genetic counselor, starting the consenting process, starting the specimen collection and arranging that. And um, as we were doing that, being able to fill in things afterwards. And each program is different, um, but in each team can set up their hospital team separately. But uh, as doing this, we, we really did find that we could do this relatively quickly and efficiently. Uh, we had set this up so that we had uh, send out. Our send out lab could do this, FedEx this to the laboratory so the samples were received first morning shipment. And then, like I said, getting results within about seven days. As we did this in this case series, uh, a third of the cases had a definitive diagnostic answer. So using some technical terminology, a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant, and then another approximately 11% had a variant of uncertain significance. So we'll hear a little bit more about that later, but um, in those cases, it, it is what it sounds like. Uh, it's not certain, it's not a definitive diagnosis. And I will give you the advice that oftentimes with that specific diagnosis in mind, it's very helpful for the clinicians to now read about that condition and go back to their patients and see whether it matches. And if the people in the laboratory, they never know the patient as well as you do. So it's incumbent on you to take their hints and go back and then see whether or not you think it matches. And in some cases, you're going to go back and dig deeper to look for some of the associated features and see if they're present. If you put those together, um, in some cases, I can tell you those variants of uncertain significance in our Siri absolutely were the diagnosis. They'll come up to a yield which may even approach something like 50%. And in general, I would say the neonates, uh, the yield is where it's highest. And this is not just based on our series. If you look at many other series nationwide or even internationally, uh, they approximate the same numbers. So um, it, it is in terms of setting uh, expectations with parents. I think you can quote numbers that are in that range. 
Dr. Chung, we have a couple of questions, um, and I think we can clarify pretty quickly for those in the audience that weren't certain. This is a discussion of an inpatient pathway, correct? Correct. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. Um, doing this is really something that we uh, expedite for inpatients and especially critically ill patients. Absolutely. So in that setting, in the hospital, in a critical care unit, there's questions regarding um, experiences with insurance pre-approval um, and some questions regarding costs, which we can talk a little bit more. But I want to clarify for the audience that when you're talking about sending this type of testing in the hospital from the intensive care unit, we expect that the um, insurance pre-approval would not be required because this would be built to the institution, correct? Absolutely correct. Uh, and based on that, your institution may decide to have a policy that governs that um, to make sure that the service is used efficiently and effectively. Um, and I think if you start talking amongst your geneticist, if you're not a geneticist, if you talk amongst them and geneticists, if you talk with your hospital administrators, I think there's a lot of traction in doing this. So I encourage you, um, you're not going to do it on every baby in your unit, but uh, certainly on, on the right ones, uh, very, very valuable. Absolutely. And I think um, for those individuals who may practice in hospitals where they have limited access to geneticists or genetic counselors, um, they may be wondering, you know, how are we going to implement something like this in our clinical setting? Because we recognize how important this testing is and we want our patients to have access to it. But there certainly are some challenges to overcome when we're thinking about going ahead with implementation of a pathway such as the one Dr. Chung um, described to us. Um, and this graphic is representing some of those questions and some of the recommendations that we have when you're thinking about setting up a pathway for full genome sequencing within your unit. Um, those, those individuals who have, have not had formal genetics training, we're referring to those types of providers as non-genetics providers, certainly are going to need education on the indication for testing, what, what you may be able to diagnose with the testing, what to expect for results. And there are options for virtual education and resources and some clinical decision aids that may be similar to what Dr. Chung reviewed that has been employed within her institution so that you are catching, so to speak, every patient that could potentially benefit from this. And you don't want to miss patients or due to things like implicit bias, perhaps miss an individual who could greatly benefit from this type of testing. So we want to make sure that our underrepresented populations have access to this testing. Some examples of things that might be considered are implicit bias training, um, thinking about what barriers you may encounter that could prevent certain patients from accessing such testing, cultural linguistic barriers. And another option for that could be engaging families and hearing those powerful stories like what we heard from Ms. Fergus about her experience and how greatly her son benefited from this type of testing. Families can be incredibly informative and educational to providers. So exploring those stories and, and hearing the benefits from, from families can be very, very helpful when we're thinking about what barriers may certain patients be facing and how do we overcome them. And then finally, when you're thinking about developing the infrastructure, you may need to designate a genome champion. You may not have 24-7 coverage for, say, genetic consults, or you may not have a genetic counselor that's inpatient that can that the team may have access to 24-7. But if you have a genome champion or you have individuals who've undergone additional training, you may have the ability to then have that infrastructure be more seamless for 24-7 coverage, because certainly in an ICU, you're going to want that. Um, there's partnerships that you can ultimately think about setting up with particular laboratories that are certified in this type of testing. And then there are also options for telegenetics um, for parts of the country, again, that may have more limited access, or at least not 24-7 access to geneticists and genetic counselors in their centers. Um, we want to make sure that we are ensuring equitable patient selection and follow through with this type of testing. One other thing to note is that um, there are resources out there. We'll provide those resources to the audience tonight as a starting point. Um, but there's certainly the National Coordinating Center for the Regional Genetics Network as a great resource 
some individuals may already be acquainted with them in their region of the country. Um, and so we have a lot of resources out there and, and we hope to be able to provide those to, to the audience tonight. I think next what we'll take some time for is to discuss some of the common barriers to rapid whole genome sequencing in the NICU or the pediatric ICU. Um, and thinking about kind of what bottlenecks or barriers we might encounter in this process and what best practices may we have to overcome them. Um, Dr. Chung, would you be able to comment on any barriers that, that you may have experienced in setting up this type of a pathway in your center? So I think you touched on a lot of them, and especially if we think about, um, you know, at Columbia, we may be one, have resources in one type of way, but a lot of other hospitals don't. Um, right. I think the real thing is to think about, like I said, and, and like you said, you know, who are the right candidates? I've even seen some people have best practice alerts or things that can come up in the EHR to be able to help so that you can um, really collectively decide as an institution how you want to do that and set up a process in place. Um, what I'd urge is there are a lot of educational materials, including videos, to be able to talk parents through this. And I actually think in many ways, less is more. Um, that is that parents, when they have an infant in the neonatal intensive care unit, are worried about a lot of things. And what commonly I hear is just do what you need to do to get me an answer, you know, to help my baby. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a small amount of blood and, and it's not a cost issue, again, in terms of doing this. So I find that this is not a hard decision for most parents to make. So I would argue don't worry too much about the front end, much worry much more about the back end in terms of as you're getting information back. And don't worry that you might get a diagnosis that you've never heard about before. Happens to me all the time. And, you know, I consider myself a pretty good geneticist. So that's okay. Um, that's when you can phone a friend. That's when we have lots of resources. Many of us write resources on things like gene reviews or write textbooks or there are things in OMMIM. Or you can go to Dr. Google if you even need to. But um, the point is you got to get to the right diagnosis, and then you can phone a friend to be able to get the experts to know about this condition. But don't be afraid of it. It's, we're trying to make this easy for you. If you're not afraid to order an MRI, you shouldn't be afraid to order a genetic test like this as long as you've got the backup when you get the diagnosis. Absolutely. We do have a question that brings up a lot of very salient points regarding the consent process for whole genome sequencing and, and certainly applies to whole exome sequencing as well. But um, commenting on the complexities of informed consent and um, particularly some of the um, more um, difficult, I'll say, discussion points to have with families as you're consenting them, for example, things like non-paternity or not families that may not have realized they had any shared ancestry or, you know, consanguinity before this test result would be revealing that. Um, those are some things that, that the audience is having questions about, particularly when they may not have access to a geneticist to go over that type of consent process with the family prior to ordering. Certainly, I think that's understandable. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I can say it doesn't come up that often, and even for me that lives in an area where there's shared ancestry in many patients. So again, um, although it's good that you're thinking about it, I wouldn't let you that hold you back. Non-paternity is not something that the labs are going to be, you know, writing in the test report. So it ends up being something that, um, you know, for the most part is not something that's going to be a discussion you're going to need to have. I also, um, within this, you know, will say to parents very specifically when we're taking the samples from them, you know, we're taking them because we're doing this um, and explaining in terms of biological parents and that type of thing. Um, the shared ancestry, I actually find that for the most part, it very, very rarely can come up with a case of incest that wasn't recognized, but um, it's, it doesn't happen very often. So I consider these edge cases. I'm not saying that they're not valid concerns, but I don't think that should hold you back in terms of trying to get the information. And again, a lot of us have developed videos that if you want to use a standardized way of being able to make sure the message gets delivered, um, we're going to have resources to be able to share with you, but there are a lot of things you don't have to reinvent the wheel, and you can do it in a standardized way, have it online for the parents or on their phone or on an iPad to look at, and it takes some of the burden off of you. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's go ahead now and discuss a little bit about interpretation of results from rapid whole genome sequencing. 
Absolutely, the result will differ depending on the laboratory that you select um, to perform the testing, but there are some major features of any report um, that we'll want to be familiar with as we're considering these results when they do return. So when we're referring to primary findings, that would be a change in a gene that is considered to be directly related to the patient's symptoms or the reasons for testing. And I think Dr. Chung mentioned this earlier, but it can't be underemphasized how important the phenotyping information or the clinical data is to getting a diagnostic result from your um, whole genome sequencing. So the better data that we have going into the testing for the laboratory to use as they're interpreting the results, the more likely and the more powerful of a primary finding we're going to get. Secondary findings are changes that in a gene that could be meaningful, um, but they're not necessarily the main indication for why the test was sent. And so that's going to be listed very clearly on your report as a secondary finding. Something that's considered to be medically actionable is something that Dr. Chung also referred to earlier when she was discussing conditions that may predispose a patient to an underlying medical problem, such as long QT or a cancer predisposition syndrome. These results would then alter the treatment or surveillance that a patient may need going forward um, for their own personal health or potentially a family member's health. Um, so that's not going to be the indication for why the test was sent, but if a family chooses to have that result in, or have those results included in their test result for rapid whole genome sequencing, then that would be listed very clearly as medically actionable if, if we do find a change in a gene that is considered to be one of those medically actionable genes. And then finally, it's going to discuss the type of variant and the classification of those variants. Um, we've included a um, image here to kind of emphasize to the audience that we have a spectrum of what we consider to be um, benign versus pathogenic in terms of when variants are reported. So benign, it means that there is a change in a gene from the what's considered to be the reference standard. However, it's not thought to, and it's, it's known that it does not affect that gene's function. And then we move towards from benign, meaning no chain doesn't alter the function of the gene, doesn't alter the function of that protein that that gene encodes, to likely benign, meaning our best understanding from what we know what's reported in databases in the literature about this gene is this change in other patients that have been reported to have this change does not cause disease as best we know, but we don't have as much evidence as we have for a change that's considered to be fully benign. The middle here is uncertain significance. And what's important there is that it's, it means that we don't have enough data yet to classify that variant as benign or pathogenic. And more data will be hopefully uncovered as more tests are performed. But at that moment, we don't know for certain that this is disease causing or not. Um, so as Dr. Chung referred to earlier, many times we then have to go back to the patient, think a little bit more, maybe send more testing, maybe look a little bit deeper at the clinical presentation to understand, could this actually be the explanation or not? And then finally, we're approaching likely pathogenic or pathogenic, meaning all of the clinical data that was provided to the laboratory when the test was sent, taken together, is now resulting with a change in a gene that we know has been associated with patients with that exact phenotype in the past or very similar phenotypes in the past. And so those would then be classified as pathogenic changes. Next, we're gonna move on to considering a patient case. Um, and I think one great thing that this case demonstrates is how detailed the phenotyping information can be, and, and the more detailed it is, the better. Um, in this case, a patient had presented with seizures, with lethargy, with increased tone. This patient was um, a baby, obviously a neonate, but was also even um, considered to be small for gestational age for their, um, for their age. They have had weight loss. Um, they don't say failure to thrive here, but they do say weight loss. Um, we've seen metabolic derangements, including acidosis. Um, this patient has had dehydration. And I think important to notice here that the, um, the team was able to provide the detailed information from imaging as well, which can be extremely helpful 
when we're thinking through results. So we see here that the, this infant, this, this program had EEG abnormalities um, and that there was also um, abnormalities noted on um, CSF studies. And um, with all of this taken together, this patient underwent rapid whole genome sequencing. The test results here are resulted as primary findings, and this patient resulted with two pathogenic variants in CFTR. So this would be the gene for cystic fibrosis. And we see that one of the variants was inherited from the mother, and one of the variants was inherited from the father. Um, now, when I when I first you know kind of encountered this case, I'm thinking through it and thinking it's not necessarily um, what I would envision the presentation for a patient with cystic fibrosis to have. It sounds like this patient was very very critically ill. Um, we see here had respiratory failure, was requiring assisted ventilation. Um, so we wonder, you know, was there more to the story? Um, you know, what exactly um, does this result explain everything for the patient's presentation? And, and so I think it's important to kind of ask the audience for their thoughts on this. Um, the primary diagnosis identified by rapid whole genome sequence in this case does not seem to explain all the patient's symptoms. Um, and if that were the case, when you send a test such as whole genome sequencing for a patient you're taking care of in your ICU, um, what next steps could you imagine taking? And so we have several um, options here to consider. Would we assume that the variants are incorrectly labeled as secondary findings? Would we retest um, looking for a molybdenum cofactor deficiency using whole exome sequencing? But certainly um, that was something that was considered on the differential the, the um, clinicians submitted with the case. Investigate unifying etiologies in addition to um, you know, what had been presented already in the, in the um, patient case. Recommend palliative care, or are we just unsure what the next step would be? So we'll give everyone a moment to respond to that. Okay, excellent. Thank you for everyone who responded here. So most everyone selected that they would now take this information and investigate unifying etiologies. And that is actually the, the correct answer here. Um, this is in fact a real case and the unifying etiology here was meconium aspiration syndrome with a perineal strep infection. So in this case, the child was critically ill from, for those reasons, and underlying those reasons, the child had cystic fibrosis and pancreatic insufficiency, which was leading, obviously, to um, worsened respiratory failure, worsened growth and malabsorption, um, which then ultimately was leading to the additional symptoms that were um, described here in this clinical case. Um, some uh, individuals did consider retesting the patient um, for molybdenum cofactor deficiency using whole exome sequencing. And actually, um, it's unlikely that we should need to do that because with the whole genome sequence, we should be able to also um, have detected that um, condition given that the whole genome sequence is really encompassing the data that we would be able to get with a microarray as well as the data that we would be able to get for a whole exome sequence. So we should in all likelihood be able to conclude that molybdenum cofactor deficiency was actually not the, the cause for this patient's symptoms. So I'm gonna next ask Dr. Chung to go through an additional case um, that was solved for whole genome sequencing. So I'll do two cases relatively quickly. Um, this was a newborn who had severe hydronephrosis prenatally. And then after the baby was born, we noted really severe pulmonary hypertension um, was very difficult to manage and uh, was transferred to us for that reason. Um, because of the severity, we were quite concerned in terms of um, what we'd need to do for management, ECMO and other things. And so sent off the genome sequencing and came back with a rare diagnosis 
uh, of a FOXF1 mutation associated with alveolar capillary dysplasia. Um, and this was due to a de novo variant. So again, by having the parents, we could see that right away. Uh, I have to say this was very, very hard uh, because this diagnosis is unfortunately a lethal diagnosis. Um, and knowing this and really knowing that we had very few limitations, um, the lungs really are not something we can aerate. Um, we can't use nitric oxide or other things to do this. Really, lung transplant is, the, is what can be done um, if we're going to do something. So with that information, uh, we were able to get the family um, to understand that, to think through their options. Um, they did consider lung transplant. They had an evaluation. There aren't that many places that will do lung transplants in a baby this age. So I um, met with the team at St. Louis and ultimately decided um, that they did not want to pursue that. And although um, very, very sad, the family did feel at the end of the day, having spoken with them afterwards, that um, this was something that they they did relish having the information. They also felt like they were empowered to seek the right information and to make a family-based decision. And ultimately, we're also uh, appreciative that they understood that because this was de novo, this was not likely to happen again. And so that's given them some solace in terms of as they think about future family planning. Um, the next, um, I'll just go briefly. Uh, the, the theme you may be hearing from me is transplant. And, and this is something I do find helpful in terms of trying to make those decisions, especially in children where organs can be scarce. Um, and this one is a case uh, that we had with a, a child, ventricular septal defect diagnosed prenatally, but postnatally, um, we're quite surprised when we suddenly had issues in terms of heart failure. Uh, and with that, in terms of the evaluation, realized that we had uh, problems with cardiomegaly. And um, this was uh, we were puzzled in terms of thinking, well, this VSD, we wouldn't have thought would have led to this type of problems in terms of uh, poor function. So with this, um, I'll say we didn't have really a significant family history in terms of heart failure or, as you'll see, cardiomyopathy. We again ran the parents for the analysis, and we identified that we had um, in a, a sarcomeric protein gene, something called MYBPC3, which we often see associated with cardiomyopathies, we actually had two different variants, and we could see that they were affecting the two different copies of the gene because they were close enough that we could see the phasing. One was maternally inherited, and the second was de novo. And we do know that um, through work that was done by the Seidmans originally, that children who have these uh, both mute uh, genes involved, mutations, uh, what we call biallelic, um, it's double trouble. And so in these cases, uh, we realize that we have to be more aggressive about thinking about the heart failure and supporting individuals um, and ultimately thinking about things like transplant. Next slide. Um, so I guess actually, well, I, I, I'll let you. Oh, okay, so what we'll do next that. is considering that case that Dr. Chung just went over with, with the infant with heart failure, um, other than the patient's care plan, what additional recommendation would we want to provide to the family based on these results? So would we ask mother to seek a cardiac evaluation herself? Would we just assume that mother has uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Would we then say avoid having more children? Would we recommend father avoid intense physical activity or are we not exactly sure what the next step would be? Okay, that's great. Um, so you guys have the right intuition. Um, the mother uh, was referred, even though she was asymptomatic, because she was at increased risk for a cardiac evaluation. Um, this end of the story is a happy one. Um, the patient was listed for transplants and, in fact, did get a heart transplant because this is something that's isolated to the heart. It's not a systemic problem. Um, that is curative, and uh, the mother's also doing well. So. Um, this was good news for this family. And again, knowing about that prognosis and knowing that transplant would be curative, it was really helpful to have that up front. Excellent. So our next slide is an example of 
what you might see in terms of rapid whole genome sequencing results um, in a patient letter. And so there's going to be a lot of information here, um, and this can be helpful to begin the discussion with your patient regarding what the results are and what the next steps are going to be. However, it is just a beginning point. Um, the action plan and next steps are going to be tailored to the individual, to their clinical circumstance, to their where they live in the country, et cetera. And so we include this as an example, but also want to recognize that this is, again, just a beginning point. Um, you'll have the reason for testing listed. You'll find whatever the results may be that are thought to be um, primary results, if there are primary results for your case. And then you'll have additional resources with recommendations for informative sites or databases where families may be able to go to get additional information about the gene or the condition that they're receiving a diagnosis with. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and move to the next slide where we're going to discuss a little bit more detail. How do we discuss results with, with the patients and their family and kind of what best practices we might be thinking about when we are going through a results discussion with the family? I'll just say this very briefly, and Ms. Fergus is really the one who should be teaching us about this. Um, right. But as I do this, um, I say um, that it, it's something that sometimes it takes some time to sink in is what I'll say. And sometimes uh, having multiple people, multiple listeners, multiple ways of talking about it, multiple times to do this. Um, but sometimes it just takes some time. And so um, don't feel like you've got to do it all in one visit. But Ms. Fergus, what would you say? <clears throat> well, given our situation, which was completely different from many families. Um, we also underwent this through COVID. So we were not allowed to leave the hospital. We were not allowed to leave the room. We were not allowed to have family members there for support. So needless to say, we were pretty cranky from lack of sleep. Um, so when we finally found this, um, you know, they discovered Michael's diagnosis, it was hard to digest. It was difficult to comprehend what needed to be done, what action plans need to be taken. So we really relied on our team of doctors. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't know enough about it. Um, the dietitian assigned to us actually gave us a formula that my mother found an ingredient that would have killed Michael. Um, so we found another dietitian, and um, unfortunately, she didn't really understand his diagnosis either. So at that point, um, as a mother, I kind of went, okay, you're fired. So I just took it upon myself to educate myself in how to better help my son um, because there wasn't... Um, I know certain genetics, you know, is easier to understand and comprehend, but um, something like HFI is very difficult to manage, especially in the U.S. There's sugar in everything, everything. So even hidden sugar words, like some people don't understand that sorbitol is a sugar in vegetables. So, and it's also in lots of medications. So medications was also something that was quite challenging. And as an infant, it's very hard to comfort an, an infant that's in pain. So trying to figure out what medications were appropriate was even more difficult as well. Um, so having the appropriate care team there that doctors like I know I can pass my patient along and, you know, it's not just a check in and check out process. Um, the family feels secure with their plan. They know what to do and they can go to those doctors for questions if they need to. Um, right now, we actually find most of our support through a Facebook group that's global um, with people who have HFI. Uh, because that's that those are the people who know. Like I said, when we go to doctors, they ask us questions. Um, even his uh, general uh, pediatrician is very hesitant to give us any advice unless it's a normal baby problem or sickness. So um, a follow up and knowing that your uh, clinical team is knowing what they know and that they're informative and can tell your patients with 100 percent certainty is definitely something to consider. And um, I, the only advice I, I can offer after that is just kind of think of if, how were, how would you feel if you didn't know anything, you weren't a doctor, and you're looking to someone for advice for your child. Um, because when it comes to your child, like you said earlier, it's something you're you're going to say it's in your hands. Do what's what's going to be the fastest result to give us the fastest, um, you know, uh, healing to this. And unfortunately, with some genetics, um, like Michael's, it's in his DNA, or rather it's not. So it's not curable. It's not treatable. It's something he will always deal with his entire life. And it's a dietary restriction is kind of how we put it to um, normal ears, not doctor ears, for everyone to uh, understand the best of their ability. 
Um, so it's just in, hopefully maybe years down the road when Michael's my age, they'll have genomic therapy where he can take a pill or a shot and he'll be able to experience pizza or ice cream. Um, but uh, up until that time, it's just something that we have to monitor the best we can and educate ourselves um, the best we can as well. Absolutely. Um, we'll take a moment um, just to remind the audience that a list of resources will be available after the presentation. Um, you'll be able to access these slides and, and look at these resources in more detail for sequencing support. And then finally, um, I want to thank our panel members. Everyone has been excellent. I want to thank the audience for a great discussion and excellent questions tonight. Um, we'd like to sum up our SMART goals and hope that our audience will take from this program um, the following, that we want to equitably implement rapid whole genome sequencing as a first-tier diagnostic test for critically ill infants with nonspecific diagnoses of unknown etiology, to leverage partnerships with certified labs and or telegenetics resources to facilitate timely access to genetics consults before, during, and after testing, and finally, to develop care plans based on these rapid whole genome sequencing test results informed empathetic and multimodal discussions um, to encourage those with family members. If we do have any time remaining, um, we can attempt to answer any additional questions now. But I think probably um, the best next step since we were fortunately able to answer some questions throughout the program is to thank everybody again um, for attending and thank you for your questions. Thank you for your attention. We'll sum up and say that that's all we have time for today. But to remind everyone, you can find the slides from this activity in the course guide under the resources tab of the program. And please don't forget to visit the virtual education hub at cmeoutfitters.com for more free resources and education for health professionals and for patients. In order to receive credit for today's activity, please complete the post-test evaluation and click on the request credit tab. Thank you to everyone who joined us this evening. Thank you to our panel. Please everyone be safe and take care. <laughs>